This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flynn. Well, Margaret, we're starting to see some corrective actions being taken at the VA, where the new Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Robert McDonald, has vowed to fix the systemic problems plaguing the VA that led to the long wait times and untimely deaths at several facilities. The emergency VA bill has been put in place to improve care practices and pay for veterans seeking care outside the VA to be treated in private practices if they are forced to wait too long. Well, Mark, there are concerns, however, that this may not be the panacea as originally thought. Private providers um, may not be thrilled with a lower reimbursement rate for their services than is provided by other payers, and hundreds of thousands of veterans are expected to seek care outside the VA system. If they have poor coverage, they may experience similar wait times and incomplete care that were problems for them within the VA system. You know, it could actually create more confusion for many veterans trying to navigate the healthcare system outside the VA. It's a situation that will continue to unfold, Margaret, but this does look like forward motion for the VA. Well, the secretary is determined to eradicate the underlying issues that led to this culture of secrecy and delays. Those responsible for cover-ups at various VA facilities around the country are already being disciplined or let go. Audits are underway across the country at VA facilities in the wake of the scandal that first broke at the Phoenix VA. And disciplinary actions are being taken at VA facilities in Colorado, Wyoming, and elsewhere more expected to follow all eyes really attuned to the VA system. It's going to take some time to restore the public's trust in the VA's credibility and reliability when it comes to caring for the health needs of uh, the nation's millions of veterans that need uh, that complex and challenging care, to say the least. Well, credibility and reliability are of great concern in another area, Mark. In states where the insurance exchanges failed during the first open enrollment under the Affordable Care Act, efforts are underway to not only fix those problems, but also to assure the public that the second open enrollment will run much more efficiently. Maryland is a case in point. Uh, it's one of the handful of states that chose to expand Medicaid and create their own exchange. And by their own admission, it was a disastrous rollout. But they've uh, since partnered with Access Health CT, a Connecticut exchange that works so well, as well as Deloitte uh, Health Systems to revamp their exchange. They're anticipating a much better time of it uh, come the second open enrollment. Well, our guest today is Dr. Joshua Sharfstein, the Secretary of Health and Mental Hygiene for the state of Maryland. He's not only presiding over the state's insurance exchange, but also some sweeping reforms in hospital payments that have been lauded as some of the most innovative health care payment reform measures in decades. And it's something that hasn't gotten a lot of attention until lately. We'll be speaking with him about that. We'll also have our weekly visit uh, with Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. Or as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Joshua Sharfstein in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. A major security hack has occurred compromising private information for 4.5 million American patients. Hackers believed to be from China stole patient data, including social security numbers, birth dates, telephone numbers, and other information from Community Health Services, Inc. The Tennessee-based Community Health is one of the largest hospital groups in the U.S., operating 206 hospitals in 29 states. 
The company claims no medical or clinical information or credit card details were breached in the hack attack. The attack is the largest of its kind involving patient information, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services website that began tracking such breaches in 2009. A TRICARE management activity data loss in 2011 affected nearly 5 million people, but it wasn't a cyber attack. The FBI had warned healthcare companies back in April that the sector's cybersecurity was lax. While overall economic growth continues at a rather anemic pace, not so the healthcare industry. The still evolving Affordable Care Act has made many companies hire thousands and plow millions into their businesses. The healthcare sector expected to post revenue growth of 12.2%, the highest of any sector, with earnings growth of 15.9% second only to the telecommunications industry. And another area of expected growth, health insurance rates, though not at the pace of a half dozen years ago when insurance rates rose by double digits annually. Projected rate increases for the coming year, hovering between 3 and 7 percent in many states. And in states where there's more transparency of insurance rates, that number skews even lower. For instance, insurance rates for 2015 are actually expected to decline ever so slightly in the state of Connecticut. As Ebola continues to spread across Southwest Africa, computer scientists at Virginia Tech are using the epidemic as a teaching tool. Computer scientists have been tracking the outbreak virtually, trying to determine the anticipated spread of the virus and, and have done so so far with a fair degree of accuracy. Computational epidemiologist Brian Lewis at Virginia Tech points to the use of known data to predict the duration and scope of the outbreak. The models he's creating with others' help will be on hand for use in future outbreaks if this or other infectious diseases take hold. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Joshua Sharstein, uh, Secretary of Health and Mental Hygiene for the state of Maryland. He was the principal deputy commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration under President Obama to 2011. Before that, Dr. Sharfstein served as health policy advisor to Congressman Henry Waxman, a pediatrician who also served as commissioner of health for the city of Baltimore. He campaigned against the marketing practices of large drug companies. He received his medical degree at Harvard School of Medicine and conducted his pediatric residency at Boston Children's Hospital and Boston Medical Center. Dr. Sharfstein, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks for having me. You know, as a public health official, you you had that enviable front row seat for the rollout of the Affordable Care Act, and it'd be safe to say you had somewhat of a roller coaster ride in Maryland. Uh, You were one of the handful of states who uh, chose to open the insurance exchanges, and there were some well-known problems that have occurred. But You've now partnered up with the state of Connecticut, adopting the Access Health CT's model and technology that seemed to work rather well uh, in that state. So tell us where Maryland is now with the partnership in advance of the next open enrollment, and what did you learn in that first go-around, and uh, what worked in the Maryland exchange in that first year? Sure. So it's been quite a year. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, along with a, a few other states in the federal government, we had some uh, major IT challenges out of the gate, but we were able to work around that. And there was just an enormous effort in Maryland that involved the insurance producers, the brokers, community uh, providers and uh, organizations across the state, the employees in the state government and elsewhere, to do a lot of what we called manual workarounds. And as a result, we were able to enroll 
more than 400,000 people in coverage, wow. which exceeded our, our original estimates, which were really around 260,000. Mm-hmm. So I mean, incredibly, despite very, very frustrating IT challenges, we were able to get a lot of people enrolled. And the results of that we're seeing. Um, our hospital system reported that the number of uh, admissions that were uninsured, uh, charity admissions, dropped by more than 50% in the first quarter this year compared to the previous year. And a lot of the safety net providers are reporting that where they used to have 80% of the people coming through their doors uninsured, it's now down to 20 or 30%. So just enormous gains in coverage despite the IT problems. Now, we took a pretty hard look at what went wrong, and we really concluded that we had essentially um, implemented the wrong IT system, and we looked around for who had done it a lot better. Uh, the Connecticut system um, really was uh, working better, and so we're making a shift uh, this fall to the Connecticut system, and that, that project is going uh, well. It's on schedule, and uh, we are looking forward to a much better web experience for people and even further gains in coverage. So uh, while that, I'm sure, took enormous attention uh, and struggle to get right, I think what many people may not know about is the efforts that are underway and have been underway to transform the Maryland health system behind the scenes. Maryland has had this innovative hospital payment system that's been hailed by noted Princeton health economist Uwe Reinhardt as the boldest proposal in the United States in the last half century to grab the problem of cost growth by the horns. And he's not given to exaggeration. And Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley has called for a sweeping set of payment reforms in the state's health care system that might incentivize a reduction in preventable hospitalizations and thus uh, save significant money in health expenditures and also uh, protect and improve health. Can you share these payment strategies with us? What's the big innovation here that other states can learn from? So what Maryland Maryland is unique in, in some ways. One of the ways is that we're the only state in the country where we have an independent commission that sets the rates for hospitals. And the basic way, way that works is that each hospital gets essentially a rate card. The hospital A's rate card may be different than the rate card for hospital B, but each hospital only gets one rate card. And all of the insurers, all the payers pay the rates on that rate card, whether it's Blue Cross Blue Shield or Kaiser, or Medicare, or Medicaid, or even an uninsured person, they all are going to be charged the same rate set by an independent commission. So we're the only state in the country that has had that um, continuously for about 40 years. And um, we have been doing some different types of pilot projects with that. And one of those projects is we can basically tinker with the rates so that hospitals are no longer paid on a fee-for-service basis, meaning they're not paid for each admission, each ER visit, each MRI. They're paid a set budget. And in the rest of the country, um, generally speaking, the majority of hospital finance is paid by the bed or the you know, the MRI, sometimes uh, the the governor says it's like they're paid like a hotel is paid. If the bed is filled, then Mm -hmm. they get paid. The way uh, there's a a process that the Rate Setting Commission in Maryland has used to basically tinker with those rates so that as um, to to set a budget and to to oversimplify it a bit, if your budget is $100 and you have 20 admissions, well, then the rate setting commission will allow you to charge $5 per admission because 5 times 20 equals 100. But if you have five admissions, then you can charge $20 per admission and you still have that same budget. So now the hospitals have a very different incentive. Instead of trying to keep their beds filled, they're trying to keep their community healthy. And the healthier their community is and the fewer admissions that come in, the more margin they make 
um, in their budget. And uh, I was recently out in Western Maryland with the Governor O'Malley, and we uh, visited Western Maryland Regional Medical Center, which is one of the hospitals that is on at this kind of global budget. And you'll see it's not like any hospital you're used to visiting. It's very quiet. When I was there, uh, it was about two-thirds full. They have a team in the ER that meets with every patient to make sure the person is a good plan for leaving the hospital so they don't come back. They send nurses out to all the nursing homes to make sure the transitions are right. They even have a clinic for anyone in the county who's got heart failure or diabetes or uh, asthma. It doesn't matter whether they're insured or not. They don't charge. They have pharmacists, they have nurse practitioners, and they have dietitians all to help the patients and to work with the patient's primary care physician um, just to keep them healthy and out of the hospital. And they've saved so much by, in fact, reducing unnecessary hospitalization. So the idea is to use the rate-setting system, change the incentives. Instead of it all being about keeping the beds filled, have it be about keeping the community healthy. And we've taken that model, essentially, and working with the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, adopted it statewide starting in January this year. Oh, that's really exciting, sort of moving from volume to value, and uh, you've had this big impact of reducing hospitalizations. Talk to us a little bit about how this partners up with the Medicare waiver system and how that functions in Maryland and uh, illuminate the the sort of the numbers here. I believe you've uh, reduced hospitalizations about 11% this year. How does the uh, partnership that the state set up its rate setting and the Medicare waiver work together? Sure. So when people talk about the Medicare waiver in Maryland, what they're, what they're really talking about is that Medicare participates in the rate setting system. Medicare pays the rates on the rate cards for hospitals. In every other state in the country, Medicare pays Medicare rates. Mm-hmm. In Maryland, Medicare pays Maryland rates. And that participation is really important to the overall system, and it allows us to do these creative things with healthcare financing. And we're seeing that, particularly in the hospitals that are facing the innovative, the different kinds of incentives, that not only are admissions going down, but the preventable admissions are really going down. And in Maryland, we're focusing not just on reducing the number of admissions and readmissions, but on improving quality, reducing complications. Um, I think we're really at the beginning. It's that this particular model that we've worked out with the federal government is a five-year uh, program starting in January. And, you know, if you judge by what you can see at places like Western Maryland Regional Medical Center, there is a lot of room to move. Let me just give you a couple pretty interesting examples. There's a hospital um, in Maryland that is working with the local mental health advocates to set up a diversion center so people who are having crises don't need to go to the emergency department. They can get handled and helped in a setting that's much, much easier for them and less traumatic. We have another hospital that's actually taking over the school health program because um, they feel like they could run the school health program at break even, but with medical records and outreach could really help control the asthma in children so that they can save money by having fewer emergency department visits and hospitalizations. So you see these very interesting partnerships. There's one in Baltimore City where they're sending home visitors out to the frequent visitors to the ER to uh, figure out what can be done mm-hmm. outside the hospital to keep people from needing to come back again and again and again. Under a fee-for-service model, the old system, you know, all those unnecessary ER visits and hospitalizations were the you know, lifeblood of hospital finance. But now 
in Maryland, it's the reverse, and the hospitals can be real partners in keeping people healthy. So, Dr. Sharfstein, let me take a look at something so many states have struggled to get a handle on, and that's the use of health information exchanges. You know, we we talk to so many states where the health systems are still really disconnected from electronic information that cannot be easily shared among the partners, but by all accounts, the system you deployed in Maryland, the Chesapeake Regional Information System for Patients, or CRISP, I like that acronym, is working very well. So if you would, tell us how that functions for hospitals, health systems, community health centers, practices, and health providers, and those on the public health side that are really seeking to achieve these better health goals. It started as uh, basically a clinical tool. So all the hospitals and the ERs, um, I think virtually all the labs and the radiology facilities contribute data. So if you're a physician, you're seeing a patient in the hospital, and you want to see whether they've been seen in another hospital, you can check CRISP. In fact, in Maryland, some people say we're going to CRISP the patient, like it's a verb. (laughs) And they check and they say, oh, looks like they already had a CT scan, or here's where their lab results were before. And that not only saves unnecessary tests, but it can point the way to diagnoses. And uh, the doctors are really appreciative. When my uh, medical school roommate is up in Massachusetts, and he recently sent out a tweet saying, I can't believe it's 2014 and I still have to call every hospital my patient has been at. And I responded, in Maryland, I heard a doctor say he can't remember the last time he ever had to do that. Mm. So it started as a clinical tool, but then it has really expanded in a lot of creative ways. A doctor in Maryland can upload their list of patients uh, to CRISP, and CRISP will send out an immediate secure email the moment any one of their patients gets to the ER. So you're not waiting for like a fax a week or two weeks later. You immediately know whether your patient is there so you can help them. We have built a prescription drug monitoring program to identify uh, problems with pain medicine prescribing, and we put it inside CRISP so that doctors can easily access that information about patients. Not just anyone can go in and, and check the system. You have to be you know, clear who you are. So they have the great list of the doctors in Maryland. So we built on that infrastructure. We had all the health plans and the managed care plans and the Medicaid program send information to CRISP about which plans each doctor is signed up for. And then we created a website, which I think is providersearch.crisphealth.org, where people can go and search for providers and their health plans. So instead of going to like you know, 10 different websites, which are all confusing by the providers. You go to one website, you say, I want a rheumatologist takes this insurance in the zip code, and it'll tell you who's there. And then finally, for for public health, we use CRISP to generate uh, maps to understand where different kinds of risks are within our system, as well as to help us during emergencies. So we can tell a community, you know, one of the consequences of you're not having enough primary care is that you know, you may be 50% more likely to send someone to the emergency room than somebody across the state. So we think we're just scratching the surface of what's possible. But in general, it's a a very secure system that um, provides a lot of value to patients as well as doctors and and, uh, public health Mm -hmm. officials. We're speaking today with Dr. Joshua Sharfstein, Secretary of Health and Mental Hygiene for the state of Maryland. You know, the Affordable Care Act laid out money for health information exchanges, and I think a lot of people fell short of the mark Maybe similar to the federal exchange, is, is there something that would not allow this to scale up outside of, you know, you obviously have different hospitals, different providers. Uh, has anybody come to you and said, let's see if we can scale this up in other states as well? There's a lot of interest in this. 
And it's complicated because, you know, there's in a number of states, there's some very dominant medical record providers. So what we've been able to do is get all the major medical record providers to participate, you know, in this system. In other places, it may be hard because um, the medical record providers may not be as open to doing it at this point in time. So I can tell you when I present about this in national meetings, people are really interested. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of work that the CRISP team does with other states. But it really requires a lot of um, effort to get it done. I mean, the governor was very involved, personally wrote the CEOs of hospitals to get them to participate. Mm -hmm. But now it's kind of something that sells itself. Dr. Sharfstein, you gave us just a little bit of a teaser on how you're uh, improving the health of people with chronic illness, helping them manage their illness, stay out of the hospital with your uh, reference to the work in Western Maryland. I think Is that your Center for Clinical Resources where the chronic disease management is going on? You know, there's a, obviously every state of the country is facing a tidal wave of chronic illness that is extremely expensive and debilitating, undermines the economy in a lot of ways. But then you've got to be able to change the way care is delivered. It doesn't really help you know, only to have insurance if you're just sitting around waiting for a heart attack or stroke to happen. You've got to figure out how to prevent that heart attack and stroke. And I think that changing the payment incentives is incredibly important. I really appreciate all the work that Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has done to spur that kind of change. And I'll tell you, below the, all the politics of the Affordable Care Act, there is a broad consensus that we really can't keep paying for health care for every surgery and every admission. We've got to think about ways to pay for value, as you said. And I think that um, we intend to continue to move that Mm -hmm. forward in different ways in Maryland. But but tell me just a little bit more about the Centers for Chronic Illness, uh, where patients uh, in the community, I think you said, with congestive heart failure or diabetes can go. It's on a no-charge basis, and there's a team of people there to help them manage their illness Who's behind that? Is this functioning like a community utility that is funded at the level of the health system? In that particular case, it's the hospital that's pay- that it does it. The clinic is located on the hospital grounds. Um, we toured it with the Governor O'Malley, and um, it's funded by the hospital because when someone doesn't come to the hospital as a result of good interventions and, and better self-management, then the hospital is going to still you know, keep that money in their budget. So they may pay a few million dollars for the clinic, but then they save more than that in reductions in um, hospitalization. So that's why they decided that it was worth it. And uh, I'll tell you, you go into the, the clinic and there's a little kiosk and it just says, you know, do you have heart failure, diabetes, or asthma? And you push the button and it brings you back. And there's a, a one little pod that's with a few nutritionists and there are a couple of nurse practitioners or pharmacists, and they go through, they keep files, and I think they told me they got over 100 different places referring patients to them. So the doctors really like them because the doctors still see their own patients. The doctors might say, you know, to someone who's had a really hard time and been admitted a lot, you know, let's um, get you some extra help and refer you to that clinic. They told me, for example, that for someone with heart failure whose body is at risk of retaining fluid, they may um, have the person call in every day with their weight. And if their weight jumps in a day, it's not from eating, it's from the fluid and a sign that the heart failure could be a problem. So before that fluid starts to affect their breathing, they're in and they may get a diuretic or something to bring their weight right back down. So they're able to do a whole bunch of things through a lot of follow-up. And, you know, it's just really hard um, when you're dealing with... um, fee-for-service system to find a way to pay for something like that. 
But in the um, global budget world, um, the hospital gets the savings. They're ready to invest in it. And I give a lot of credit to Barry Roan and the CEO out there and the team for setting something like this up. We've been speaking today with Dr. Joshua Sharfstein, Secretary of Health and Mental Hygiene for the state of Maryland. Follow him on Twitter at uh, D-R-J-O-S-H-S, Dr. Josh S. Dr. Sharfstein, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations for Healthcare. Great. It's been a pleasure. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, a new ad from the conservative group Crossroads GPS offers a twisted tale about the Affordable Care Act and its impact on one family. It leaves the false impression that a Colorado woman had to go back to work to pay for health insurance mandated by the ACA. It turns out, as she told a local TV station, her decision to get a job had nothing to do with the health care law. We've seen other ads in this genre, ones that feature real people but not-so-real anecdotes. In this one, a woman named Rochelle McKim says the ACA has hurt families and small business owners. She says her husband took a risk to start his own company. The family needed health care, but because they had a single income, they, quote, couldn't afford our plan, she says. As she speaks, text appears on screen saying she, quote, had to go back to work. The ad's deceptive framing leaves the false impression that she had to go back to work in order to afford insurance on the state's marketplace created under the ACA, which requires all legal U.S. residents, with some exceptions, to have insurance by 2014 or pay a penalty. But that's not the case. A local Colorado TV station, KDVR, reported that the woman's LinkedIn page showed she had worked outside the home continuously since May 2010, more than three years before the ACA's mandate. She told the TV station that her decision to go back to work wasn't because of the ACA. She said it was simply a financial burden living on a single income. The family has insurance through her employer. But that's not the story told in the ad, nor the impression left by it. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Childhood obesity has reached epidemic proportions in this country, and it's reaching into the most vulnerable populations, toddlers and preschoolers. The trend was particularly disturbing to Louisiana State University behavioral and community health professor Dr. Melinda Southern, who said the numbers of obese children in Louisiana preschool is particularly distressing. Currently, on average across the United States, 15% of children 0 to 5 years are obese or overweight. And in the minority populations, 
it's actually one-third, so it's much greater. And in Louisiana, it's actually in that population greater as well. Obesity at such a young age is associated with mental health problems. It's associated with bone and joint problems, especially in their young developing bones. They can have a higher risk for attention deficit disorder. And then as they approach adolescence, their risk for developing type 2 diabetes and high cholesterol and high blood pressure also increases. Dr. Sutherland conducted an analysis and discovered that a majority of the children in Head Start programs across the state are spending much more time in sedentary activities almost 90% of the time. With a grant from the National Institute of Health, Nutrition and Physical Activity Self-Assessment for Child Care, NAPSAC program, they devised a program that brought dietitians into a series of Head Start daycare centers and created opportunities for the children to increase their movement every day. Using accelerometers, they were able to get accurate assessments of increased movement among the children. So we actually strapped an apparatus around the children that measured how long they were being physically active and how hard or how intense. So we could measure whether they were just walking or running. And about 80% of the time, these zero to five-year-olds were sitting or lying. They were not being physically active. We were very surprised by that. And at the end of that six months, what we found was that only in the intervention centers did we see an increase in physical activity. And when compared to the control centers, um, it was an overall almost 22% increase in total physical activity. And what was even more amazing was a 50% increase in the vigorous activity that we really want those preschoolers to engage in. You know, that sort of start, stop, jump, run activity that is so natural for them and is so good for their development. The study was published in the journal Childhood Obesity a low-cost intervention that has the potential to have significant impact on one of the underlying causes leading to childhood obesity, which is sedentary lifestyle. Incentivizing daycare centers to keep kids moving throughout the day, now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.